Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author but also director of the centre. I wanted today to begin a series on the essential fantasy reads. Who are are mythmakers that have passed down the ideas that have gone into the way we write fantasy and science fiction. I had the very good fortune of studying for a doctorate in Oxford um, quite a few years ago now uh, and the period I studied was that of the Romantic era which is thought of as the years 1790 to 1830. Now, thinking about that period, right in the heart of it, there is one of the most important novels ever written, which has spawned so much science fiction and fantasy that followed it. I wonder if you can guess what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Frankenstein. It was written by Mary Shelley and published in 1818, but she actually started writing it a few years earlier. So that meant when she first came up with the idea in about 1816, she was only 18. And this is a a work that has changed the way not only that we think about stories involving um, creatures and monsters and uh, mad scientists, all all those kind of familiar tropes, but it has become one of those stories that crosses over into society and shapes the way we think about particularly things like scientific innovation. Now, the origin story of Frankenstein is almost as interesting as the book. This was the famous stormy night in the Villa Diodati where Mary Shelley, um, who was at that time Mary Godwin, was there with her future husband, Percy Shelley. They'd eloped and run away from England, leaving behind Percy Shelley's first family Uh, And along with them was Mary Shelley's half-sister, Claire Claremont. Also in the villa was, of course, Byron and then Dr. Polidori, who was a sort of companion to Byron, a, a doctor. Anyway, this group got together and they had a literary competition where they were all to go away and write something in this, you know, in the nature of a ghost story, that kind of thing. Um. I think that the the two more famous men, um, Byron and Shelley, both kind of struck out on this. They didn't particularly follow through with that. 
But the two others um, who took up the writing challenge, Mary Godwin and uh, Dr. Polidori, both went on to produce novels which were published. Polidori's is The Vampire, which is an interesting idea in its own right, and that leads on to things like uh, Dracula. But uh, Mary Shelley's, Mary Godwin's, was to be Frankenstein. Now, why is it important? Well, I'm sure you're aware of its place in culture just because you've heard of such things as Frankenstein's food and um, you've seen the Boris Karloff films of the man with the bolts in his neck being woken up by electricity, all those kind of things. But this series is about encouraging people to go back to the origins of this story, the where it starts as a fantasy novel. So the first thing I wanted to sort of point you towards has, is how interesting it is structurally as a novel. It starts off as a letter written from a seafarer called Walton, and then it takes the form of like an onion. So the outer skin is Walton's narrative. Within that, he is being told the story by um, Victor Frankenstein. That is the scientist, not the creature. And within Victor Frankenstein's narrative is embedded the creature's narrative. And then it sort of comes back out again. You get Victor Frankenstein telling his story and then it goes back to the reflections of Wharton at the end of at the end when there's a, a sort of denouement in the icy fields of the North Pole. So that structure of the sort of coming into a point and out of a point you may have come across this in the modern novel Cloud Atlas that also became a film, which has multiple narratives that sort of work into a central point and work out. You may, when you've read that, thought, oh, how original. But actually, at the same time as Mary Shelley was writing, uh, there was an experimental novel quite similar to this um, called The Manuscript Found at Saragossa. It's written originally in French by a Polishman. Are you following me here? Uh, his name is... Count Jan Potocki, the sort of courtly language um, to get a wider readership was French at that time. So that's why a Polish man is writing in French. And that one is a has insane numbers of levels. Um, it, it is it is out cloud atlasing the David Mitchell book. So playing with the form is definitely available as an example in Mary Shelley's era. But she does it very simply. It's a very clean three level and back out again. And one of the effects of this, these shifts of perspective, is rather than a modern fantasy novel, which keeps moving point of view without much relation to each other. Um, it's just, OK, right now we go over to, you know, this warrior over in this battlefield. The way this is structured is that you keep changing your view on what the story might be about. It's a bit like hearing um, arguments in a trial, first the defence and then the prosecution, and you have to weigh up who you think is right. And of course, the central battle is between Victor Frankenstein and the creature. Just as a sidebar here, I'm very carefully calling uh, the creature neither Frankenstein nor the monster because the monster is what other people call the creature. The creature himself, uh, who hasn't even been given a name by his creator, he 
he's calling on the fact that he has been created by Victor Frankenstein. And he actually points out to Frankenstein that he has a responsibility like God to Adam. Uh, there's a famous line about, am I not your Adam? So that that whole structure really works for the book because you've got the rational seafarer um, Walton, who's like the sort of anchor. Then you've got Victor Frankenstein pleading his case about the terrible things that happened to him once he created this creature. Then you've got the creature t- confessing or telling his story, how he um, came to sentience, really, and why he acted as he did. And your feelings change as you read more because he goes from the sort of abused innocence to going on a bit of a rampage in a way. But there's the very interesting question there is nature versus nurture. So is his evil from the way he's been neglected or is there something in, you know, something gone wrong, a choice that he is making? The book leans towards the nurture argument on the whole. Another reason why it's worth a read for the the non-obvious reasons of it's a jolly good tale, is that the story also examines the question of the rights of the creature. This was an era where the rights of man, the book by Thomas Paine that was very influential on the French Revolution, the American Revolution and radical thought. And Mary Wollstonecraft's answer of the rights of women, which is obviously one of the origins of feminism, Mary Shelley is chiming in with something which has a a resonance now with the rights of such things as artificial intelligence or other creatures, because the creature is arguing that he has the right to be looked after and nurtured and recognised as a, for his dignity, he has the right to procreate. That's one of his, his real sort of, the point where he really flips out is when Victor Frankenstein tries to placate him, says, oh, yes, yes, I'll, I'll make you a female, and then gets cold feet. And he tears up the almost completed um, lady creature. Um, and that, of course, is a form of uh, murdering the creature's future. He can't go off and start his own race because Victor Frankenstein is afraid of what he can become. You know, our sympathies as we're reading are divided on that, but it's it, it does feel a bit like the debate going on in AI as are, is AI the biggest threat to us? Um, the late Stephen Hawking said it was, you know, one of the big challenges we were going to face in the 21st century. And of course, it occupies a lot of science fiction now, that question. Or is there a debate to have about at what point do do these artificial systems, these androids, get rights of their own? So here we're talking of um, things like um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the the book that inspired Blade Runner, or even Data in the um, Jean Picard Star Trek. All these debates are about, are, are defining... What at what point there is a right, a human right is the wrong word, isn't it? We're looking for a, a right um, to be respected, something akin to human rights. And obviously that is a huge area for 
people to write about now. So if you're thinking, how did this start? Where did people begin to ask these questions? Frankenstein is a wonderful place to go to see how it was handled in its early days. There's another interesting sidebar here. I've mentioned Mary Wollstonecraft in passing about the rights of women, but the connection between Mary Shelley's Rights of the Creature book is even closer than you might think because uh, Mary Wollstonecraft was the mother of Mary Godwin, Mary Shelley. Um, This was through her union with William Godwin, who was a radical thinker of the time. And we're going to come back to him in a minute because both influences of both father and mother can be seen in Mary Shelley's work. But moving on from the question about the rights, which I think is a very fruitful area in and of itself, there's also the, the way that Mary Godwin, Mary Shelley, treats the whole question of science and scientific progress. We are used to um, science fiction picking up these ideas and perhaps even paving the way for scientists to think the unthinkable, you know, the Isaac Asimov's good old Star Trek, other uh, Star Wars too, uh, places where people imagine a science that doesn't yet exist and then the scientists come along and fulfill it. What was happening here is exactly the same. Um, Mary Shelley had become interested in galvanism. Galvanism is named after an Italian scientist called Galvani, who was experimenting with electricity. This is the early days of electricity. You've got figures such as Michael Faraday in the Royal Institution, who is just at this point, in fact, a couple of years later, uh, inventing the electric motor and explaining much more about electricity in his lecture series that follow on in the 1830s. But at the point at which Mary Shelley is writing, electricity was very poorly understood. They'd They'd begun to build rudimentary batteries, but they had no idea if it was like a liquid or um, they hadn't really got the idea of a force yet. So it was a mysterious, um, it's a mysterious thing, electricity. They knew it was important, but they didn't quite yet grasp how important. But one of the people paving the way that led to the great electrical scientists of the 19th century and Michael Faraday and... Um, Maxwell in his uh, equations that happens later on. Um, One of the really key things that happens is that he applies the electric current to the the bodies of dead frogs, you're following me, (laughs) and he makes them twitch. Uh, And there is evidence that the nervous system carried on reacting to electricity after death. So this, of course, got the idea that maybe electricity, in a sense, is the life force, that they're the same thing. It was, It's the animating principle. I mean, they aren't completely wrong because obviously our body, you know, with synapses and all that kind of thing, there is a, there is a link here. Um, they weren't on a completely wrong path, but it doesn't stop the novelist running with the beginnings of an idea and actually saying, okay, Maybe um, you can revive people with electricity. Thankfully, we often do that now in hospitals with um, defibrillators. I mean, she, they're right, aren't they? But she also thought, well, maybe it can 
instill life. It can kind of bring a soul or whatever you think of the animating principle of a person into the body of the creature. Hence, all those filmic moments that you see of um, the creature being wired up to uh, a machine and lightning striking and up he gets. So she's playing with scientific ideas and pushing them to a really fascinating extreme. But where her sort of fame comes is it's clear the experiment's gone too far. So the very thing that Frankenstein creates comes back to rip his part, his world apart. So that is why we have f- phrases such as Frankenstein food. The idea is that these are in some ways unnatural creations which might come round to bite us in the future or destroy us uh, in the worst case scenario. So she she got there first and she gave us a very clear way of thinking about the dangers of scientific progress as well as its excitement. She also looks back though because Victor Frankenstein has an unorthodox education. He delves into the world of the occult, the world of um, alchemists. So she's also playing with the science of the past, which again you often find in fantasy, uh, the idea of the philosopher's stone. Is that sound familiar Uh, and and things like that so she's also showing how past scientific ideas which are now thought of as defunct can still be wonderful material um, for a literary creation and then the other sort of contemporary issue that she touches on in this is the whole idea of dissection there was a great difficulty getting hold of bodies to be dissected for medical procedures And this led to the grisly time of the body snatchers, the Burke and Hares. Victor Frankenstein becomes a kind of body snatcher because in order to make Frank, to order to make the creature, he sews together a number of bodies, which he's kind of assembled in his laboratory. So it was regarded as taboo breaking, uh, in some ways transgressive. So she's... Um, she's cluing herself in on the worries that people had about that their bodies might be snatched, which is why in some uh, graveyards you'd make a great show of locking them, putting heavy stones down, um, locking the mausoleum. All those things were in part fear that someone would come and dig up a body and use it for experimentation. In the end, uh, this sort of societal deal was that they use the body of criminals who were executed. And if there weren't enough of them, they uh, used the poor people. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a, a brilliant solution, but that is how they solved that one. And the final why you should read about Frankenstein, I think, is the story theme that she's picked up, which is very powerful, of two titanic wills that are locked together in this fight to the death there, she isn't the only person in the era using this kind of image. Uh, a contemporary to her wrote a really fascinating book, which I'd kind of also put on your reading list if you get a chance, um, which is James Hogg, Confessions of a Justified Sinner, which was published in 1824. And in that one, you've got somebody who has a doppelganger, but it is also in a, in a way uh, 
it's, it feels a bit like a, a book about mental illness as well. It's very interesting that there's this shadow figure fighting for um, which one is going to prevail out of in that story. So it's, it's a fascinating book. But going back to her parents, Mary Shelley had a, a much more close to home example that she may have found some inspiration in. And that is William Godwin, who is best known for his political theories, such as political justice. He was regarded as kind of, he's kind of way out on the left, the kind of Bernie Sanders, but more, more left <laughs> of the time, a real radical thinker, unconventional lifestyles. But he wrote a novel called Caleb Williams, which is a kind of class struggle book because Caleb Williams is the servant who discovers the secret of his master Falkland and that could destroy this man's reputation, which leads to this bitter battle which they're fighting, um, trying to destroy each other. And so they're locked together, trying to, you know, claw each other down. So that story of, the, of an obsession, it ends very differently to Frankenstein, but the intensity of that battle of a central pair one of whom is subservient to the other, the kind of servant-master relationship, does have echoes in Frankenstein. Anyway, um, Mary Shelley's version of it is even more powerful because the master creates the very thing that tries to destroy him. And you can see how this has fed through to future books. Probably the most famous one of those is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with the split personality. That feels like the love child of Confessions of a Justified Sinner and Frankenstein, that book. Um, a fantastic. That's another must read, which perhaps we should talk about in another podcast. So what's the takeaway? What's the summary? Why read Frankenstein? Well, if you're a fantasy fan and want to be a fantasy writer, I think it definitely needs to be on your list. It's not that long. Um, the language is that of the 19th century, so you might need to tune yourself into it, but it is a fantastic story. You can also, one sort of more faithful rendering of it is the stage play, um, which they did at the National Theatre, which originally starred Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller. What was interesting in that is by switching roles in the play so one one night one of them would be playing Victor Frankenstein and the monster and then they would switch it shows the closeness um of the two the struggle between the two how they are reflections of each other they make each other in in a way um that's actually if you if you don't fancy reading the novel or you find it difficult do look up a recording of that they are it is it was filmed and does get um rebroadcast it was broadcast during lockdown, so you may have spotted it then. Anyway, do um, pick up on that story because what you're getting is an amazing novel written by a girl who is in 1819, who influenced the way society sees science, both as a warning and how it can be used in literature. And she changed the world as a result. She made the modern myth, which is the myth of the modern Prometheus, which is her subtitle for that story. The idea of the person who, who strove too far. If you have any ideas for a must-read fantasy novel, which should be part of this series, do let us know. 
we always end with where in all the worlds is the best place for something and thinking about this one I suppose the obvious question is where in all the world is the best place to be a scientist that's quite a tricky one because um, I suppose we'll be looking in science fiction if we did that but on the whole I think maybe my choice would be um, Wakanda um, I'd, I'd choose to go into the lab there because obviously they're way ahead in the Black Panther of all other societies and you get your own lab all to yourself and you can create fantastic flying machines and ones that you um, you can fly from the ground yeah no I think that's where I would choose to be a scientist I'd go to Wakanda and ask for a job in that laboratory Thank you very much for listening and I hope you have enjoyed this little visit to Frankenstein. Look forward to sharing some more ideas with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies, and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.